In general the performance since World War II has been superior to that of earlier decades, but the advance in the 1960s was less pronounced than that of the 1950s. Today's investor cannot tell from this record what percentage gain in earnings dividends and prices he may expect in the next 10 years, but it does supply all the encouragement he needs for a consistent policy of common stock investment. However, a point should be made here that is not disclosed in our table. The year 1970 was marked by a definite deterioration in the overall earnings posture of our corporations. The rate of profit on invested capital fell to the lowest percentage since the World War years. Equally striking is the fact that a considerable number of companies reported net losses for the year, many became financially troubled, and for the first time in three decades there were quite a few important bankruptcy proceedings. These facts as much as any others have prompted the statement made above that the great boom era may have come to an end in 1969-1970. A striking feature of Table 3-2 is the change in the price-earnings ratios since World War II. In June 1949 the S&P Composite Index sold at only 6.3 times the applicable earnings of the past 12 months. In March 1961 the ratio was 22.9 times. Similarly, the dividend yield on the S&P index had fallen from over 7% in 1949 to only 3.0% in 1961, a contrast heightened by the fact that interest rates on high-grade bonds had meanwhile risen from 2.60% to 4.50%. This is certainly the most remarkable turnabout in the public's attitude in all stock market history. To people of long experience and innate caution the passage from one extreme to another carried a strong warning of trouble ahead. They could not help thinking apprehensively of the 1926-1929 bull market and its tragic aftermath. But these fears have not been confirmed by the event. True. The closing price of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. BCD. In 1970 was the same as it was 61 halves years earlier, and the much heralded soaring 60s proved to be mainly a march up a series of high hills and then down again. But nothing has happened either to business or to stock prices that can compare with the bear market and depression of 1929 to 1932. The stock market level in early 1972. With a century-long conspectus of stock, prices, earnings, and dividends before our eyes, let us try to draw some conclusions about the level of 900 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average and 100 for the S&P Composite Index in January 1972. In each of our former editions we have discussed the level of the stock market at the time of writing and endeavored to answer the question whether it was too high for conservative purchase. The reader may find it informing to review the conclusions we reached on these earlier occasions. This is not entirely an exercise in self-punishment. It will supply a sort of connecting tissue that links the various stages of the stock market in the past 20 years and also a taken-from-life picture of the difficulties facing anyone who tries to reach an informed and critical judgment of current market levels. Let us, first, reproduce the summary of the 1948, 1953, and 1959 analyses that we gave in the 1965 edition. In 1948 we applied conservative standards to the Dow Jones level of 180, and found no difficulty in reaching the conclusion that it was not too high in relation to underlying values. When we approached this problem in 1953 the average market level for that year had reached 275, a gain of over 50% in five years. We asked ourselves the same question, namely, whether in our opinion the level of 275 for the Dow Jones Industrials was or was not too high for sound investment. In the light of the subsequent spectacular advance, it may seem strange to have to report that it was by no means easy for us to reach a definitive conclusion as to the attractiveness of the 1953 level. We did say, positively enough that from the standpoint of value indications, our chief investment guide, 
the conclusion about 1953 stock prices must be favorable. But we were concerned about the fact that in 1953, the averages had advanced for a longer period than in most bull markets of the 73 past, and that its absolute level was historically high. Setting these factors against our favorable value judgment, we advised a cautious or compromise policy. As it turned out, this was not a particularly brilliant counsel. A good profit would have foreseen that the market level was due to advance an additional 100% in the next five years. Perhaps we should add in self-defense that few if any of those whose business was stock market forecasting, as ours was not, had any better inkling than we did of what lay ahead. At the beginning of 1959 we found the Dow Jones Industrial Average at an all-time high of 584. Our lengthy analysis made from all points of view may be summarized in the following, from page 59 of the 1959 edition, in sum. We feel compelled to express the conclusion that the present level of stock prices is a dangerous one. It may well be perilous because prices are already far too high. But even if this is not the case the market's momentum is such as inevitably to carry it to unjustifiable heights. Frankly, we cannot imagine a market of the future in which there will never be any serious losses, and in which every tyro will be guaranteed a large profit on his stock purchases. The caution we expressed in 1959 was somewhat better justified by the sequel than was our corresponding attitude in 1954. Yet it was far from fully vindicated. The Dow Jones Industrial Average advanced to 685 in 1961, then fell a little below our 584 level, to 566. Later in the year, advanced again to 735 in late 1961, and then declined in near panic to 536 in May 1962, showing a loss of 27% within the brief period of six months. At the same time there was a far more serious shrinkage in the most popular growth stocks as evidenced by the striking fall of the indisputable leader, international business machines from a high of 607 in December 1961 to a low of 300 in June 1962. This period saw a complete debacle in a host of newly launched common stocks of small enterprises, the so-called hot issues, which had been offered to the public at ridiculously high prices and then had been further pushed up by needless speculation to levels little short of insane. Many of these lost 90% and more of the quotations in just a few months. The collapse in the first half of 1962 was disconcerting, if not disastrous, to many self acknowledged speculators and perhaps 74. To many more imprudent people who called themselves investors. But the turnabout that came later that year was equally unsuspected by the financial community. The stock market averages resumed their upward course, producing the following sequence. The recovery and new ascent of common stock prices was indeed remarkable and created a corresponding revision of Wall Street sentiment. At the low level of June 1962 predictions had appeared predominantly bearish, and after the partial recovery to the end of that year they were mixed, leaning to the skeptical side. But at the outset of 1964 the natural optimism of brokerage firms was again manifest, nearly all the forecasts were on the bullish side, and they so continued through the 1964 advance. We then approached the task of appraising the November 1964 levels of the stock market, 892 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. After discussing it learnedly from numerous angles we reached three main conclusions. The first was that old standards, of valuation, appear inapplicable, new standards have not yet been tested by time. The second was that the investor must base his policy on the existence of major uncertainties. The possibilities compass the extremes, on the one hand, of a protracted and further advance in the market's level, say by 50%, or to 1350 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average or, on the other hand, of a largely unheralded collapse of the same magnitude, bringing the average in the neighborhood of, 
say, 450, p. 63. The third was expressed in much more definite terms. We said, speaking bluntly, if the 1964 price level is not too high how could we say that any price level is too high? And the chapter closed as follows. What course to follow? Investors should not conclude that the 1964 market level is dangerous merely because they read it in this book. They must weigh our reasoning against the contrary reasoning they will hear from most competent and experienced people on Wall Street. In the end each one must make his own decision and accept responsibility therefore. We suggest, however, that if the investor is in doubt as to which course to pursue he should choose the path of caution. The principles of investment, as set forth herein, would call for the following policy under 1964 conditions, in order of urgency. 1. No borrowing to buy or hold securities. 2. No increase in the proportion of funds held in common stocks. 3. A reduction in common stock holdings where needed to bring it down to a maximum of 50% of the total portfolio. The capital gains tax must be paid with as good grace as possible, and the proceeds invested in first quality bonds or held as a savings deposit. Investors who for some time have been following a bona fide dollar cost averaging plan can in logic elect either to continue their periodic purchases unchanged or to suspend them until they feel the market level is no longer dangerous. We should advise rather strongly against the initiation of a new dollar averaging plan at the late 1964 levels, since many investors would not have the stamina to pursue such a scheme if the results soon after initiation should appear highly unfavorable. This time we can say that our caution was vindicated. The Dow Jones Industrial Average advanced about 11% further, to 995, but then fell irregularly to a low of 632 in 1970, and finished that year at 839. The same kind of debacle took place in the price of hot issues that is, with declines running as much as 90%, as had happened in the 1961-62 setback. And, as pointed out in the introduction, the whole financial picture appeared to have changed in the direction of less enthusiasm and greater doubts. A single fact may summarize the story. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed 1970 at a level lower than six years before, the first time such a thing had happened since 1944. Such were our efforts to evaluate former stock market levels. Is there anything we and our readers can learn from them? We considered the market level favorable for investment in 1948 and 1953, but too cautiously in the latter year, dangerous in 1959 at 584 for Dow Jones Industrial Average, and too high, at 892, in 1964. All of these judgments could be defended even today by adroit arguments. But it is doubtful if they have been as useful as our more pedestrian counsels, in favor of a consistent and controlled common stock policy on the one hand, and discouraging endeavors to beat the market or to pick the winners on the other. Nonetheless we think our readers may derive some benefit from a renewed consideration of the level of the stock market, this time as of late 1971, even if what we have to say will prove more interesting than practically useful, or more indicative than conclusive. There is a fine passage near the beginning of Aristotle's ethics that goes, it is the mark of an educated mind to expect that amount of exactness which the nature of the particular subject admits. It is equally unreasonable to accept merely probable conclusions from a mathematician and to demand strict demonstration from an orator. The work of a financial analyst falls somewhere in the middle between that of a mathematician and of an orator. At various times in 1971 the Dow Jones Industrial Average stood at the 892 level of November 1964 that we considered in our previous edition. But in the present statistical study we have decided to use the price level and the related data for the Standard and Poor's Composite Index, or S&P 500, because it is more comprehensive and representative of the general market than the 30-stock Dow Jones Industrial Average.
we shall concentrate on a comparison of this material near the four dates of our former editions, namely the year ends of 1948, 1953, 1958 and 1963, plus 1968, for the current price level we shall take the convenient figure of 100, which was registered at various times in 1971 and in early 1972. The salient data are set forth in Table 3.3. For our earnings figures we present both the last year's showing and the average of three calendar years. For 1971 dividends we use the last 12 months figures, and for 1971 bond interest and wholesale prices those of August 1971. The three-year price earnings ratio for the market was lower in October 1971 than at year-end 1963 and 1968. It was about the same as in 1958, but much higher than in the early years of the long bull market. This important indicator, taken by itself, could not be construed to indicate that the market was especially high in January 1972. But when the interest yield on high-grade bonds is brought into the picture, the implications become much less favorable. The reader will note from our table that the ratio of stock returns, earnings slash price, to bond returns has grown worse during the entire period, so that the January 1972 figure was less favorable to stocks, by this criterion, than in any of the previous years examined. When dividend yields are compared with bond yields we find that the relationship was completely reversed between 1948 and 1972. In the early year stocks yielded twice as much as bonds. Now bonds yield twice as much, and more, than stocks. Our final judgment is that the adverse change in the bond yield slash stock yield ratio fully offsets the better price earnings ratio for late 1971 based on the three-year earnings figures. Hence our view of the early 1972 market level would tend to be the same as it was some seven years ago, that is, that it is an unattractive one from the standpoint of conservative investment. This would apply to most of the 1971 price range of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, between, say, 800 and 950. In terms of historical market swings the 1971 picture would still appear to be one of irregular recovery from the bad setbacks you fared in 1969 to 1970. In the past such recoveries have ushered in a new stage of the recurrent and persistent bull market that began in 1949. This was the expectation of Wall Street generally during 1971, after the terrible experience suffered by the public buyers of low-grade common stock offerings in the 1968-1970 cycle, it is too early, in 1971, for another twirl of the new issue merry-go-round. Hence that dependable sign of imminent danger in the market is lacking now, as it was at the 892 level of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in November 1964 considered in our previous edition. Technically, then, the outlook would appear to favor another substantial rise far beyond the 900 Dow Jones Industrial Average level before the next serious setback or collapse. But we cannot quite leave the matter there, as perhaps we should. To us, the early 1971 market's disregard of the harrowing experiences of less than a year before is a disquieting sign. Can such heedlessness go unpunished? We think the investor must be prepared for difficult times ahead, perhaps in the form of a fairly quick replay of the 1969-1970 decline, or perhaps in the form of another bull market fling, to be followed by a more catastrophic collapse.3. What course to follow? Turn back to what we said in the last edition, reproduced on p. 75. This is our view at the same price level, say 900, for the Dow Jones Industrial Average in early 1972 as it was in late 1964. Chapter 4 General Portfolio Policy The Defensive Investor The basic characteristics of an investment portfolio are usually determined by the position and characteristics of the owner or owners. 
At one extreme we have had savings banks, life insurance companies, and so-called legal trust funds. A generation ago their investments were limited by law in many states to high-grade bonds and, in some cases, high-grade preferred stocks. At the other extreme we have the well-to-do and experienced businessman, who will include any kind of bond or stock in his security list provided he considers it an attractive purchase. It has been an old and sound principle that those who cannot afford to take risks should be content with a relatively low return on their invested funds. From this though has developed the general notion that the rate of return which the investor should aim for is more or less proportionate to the degree of risk he is ready to run. Our view is different. The rate of return sought should be dependent, rather, on the amount of intelligent effort the investor is willing and able to bring to bear on his task. The minimum return goes to our passive investor, who wants both safety and freedom from concern. The maximum return would be realized by the alert and enterprising investor who exercises maximum intelligence and skill. In 1965 we added, in many cases there may be less real risk associated with buying a bargain issue offering the chance of a large profit than with a conventional bond purchase yielding about 41 halves of a percent. This statement had more truth in it than we ourselves suspected, since in subsequent years even the best long-term bonds lost a substantial part of their market value because of the rise in interest rates. The Basic Problem of Bond Stock Allocation We have already outlined in briefest form the portfolio policy of the defensive investor. He should divide his funds between high-grade bonds and high-grade common stocks. We have suggested as a fundamental guiding rule that the investor should never have less than 25% or more than 75% of his funds in common stocks, with a consequent inverse range of between 75% and 25% in bonds. There is an implication here that the standard division should be an equal one, or 50 to 50, between the two major investment mediums. According to tradition the sound reason for increasing the percentage in common stocks would be the appearance of the bargain price levels created in a protracted bear market. Conversely, sound procedure would call for reducing the common stock component below 50% when in the judgment of the investor the market level has become dangerously high. These copybook maxims have always been easy to enunciate and always difficult to follow, because they go against that very human nature which produces that excesses of bull and bear markets. It is almost a contradiction in terms to suggest as a feasible policy for the average stock owner that he lighten his holdings when the market advances beyond a certain point and add to them after a corresponding decline. It is because the average man operates, and apparently must operate, in opposite fashion that we have had the great advances and collapses of the past, and, this writer believes, we are likely to have them in the future. If the division between investment and speculative operations were as clear now as once it was, we might be able to envisage investors as a shrewd, experienced group who sell out to the heedless, hapless speculators at high prices and buy back from them at depressed levels. This picture may have had some verisimilitude in bygone days, but it is hard to identify it with financial developments since 1949. There is no indication that such professional operations as those of the mutual funds have been conducted in this fashion. The percentage of the portfolio held in equities by the two major types of funds, balanced and common stock has changed very little from year to year. Their selling activities have been largely related to endeavors to switch from less to more promising holdings. If, as we have long believed, the stock market has lost contact with its old bounds, and if new ones have not yet been established, then we can give the investor no reliable rules by which to reduce his common stock holdings toward the 25% minimum and rebuild them later to the 75% maximum. We can urge that in general the investor should not have more than one half in equities unless he has strong confidence in the soundness of his stock position and is sure that he could view a market decline of the 1969-70 to 70 type with equanimity.
it is hard for us to see how such strong confidence can be justified at the levels existing in early 1972. Thus we would counsel against a greater than 50% apportionment to common stocks at this time. But, for complementary reasons, it is almost equally difficult to advise a reduction of the figure well below 50%, unless the investor is disquieted in his own mind about the current market level, and will be satisfied also to limit his participation in any further rise to, say, 25% of his total funds. We are thus led to put forward for most of our readers what may appear to be an oversimplified 50 to 50 formula. Under this plan the guiding rule is to maintain as nearly as practicable an equal divvy sign between bond and stock holdings. When changes in the market level have raised the common stock component to, say, 55%, the balance would be restored by a sale of one eleventh of the stock portfolio and the transfer of the proceeds to bonds. Conversely, a fall in the common stock proportion to 45% would call for the use of one eleventh of the bond fund to buy additional equities. Yale University followed a somewhat similar plan for a number of years after 1937, but it was geared around a 35% normal holding in common stocks. In the early 1950s, however, Yale seems to have given up its once famous formula, and in 1969 held 61% of its portfolio in equities, including some convertibles. At that time the endowment funds of 71 such institutions, totaling $7.6 billion, held 60.3% in common stocks. The Yale example illustrates the almost lethal effect of the great market advance upon the once popular formula approach to investment. Nonetheless we are convinced that our 50 to 50 version of this approach makes good sense for their defensive investor. It is extremely simple, it aims unquestionably in the right direction. It gives the follower the feeling that he is at least making some moves in response to market developments, most important of all it will restrain him from being drawn more and more heavily into common stocks as the market rises to more and more dangerous heights. Furthermore, a truly conservative investor will be satisfied with the gains shown on half his portfolio in a rising market, while in a severe decline he may derive much solace from reflecting how much better off he is than many of his more venturesome friends. While our proposed 50 to 50 division is undoubtedly the simplest all-purpose program devisable, it may not turn out to be the best in terms of results achieved. Of course, no approach, mechanical or otherwise, can be advanced with any assurance that it will work out better than another. The much larger income return now offered by good bonds than by representative stocks is a potent argument for favoring the bond component. The investor's choice between 50% or a lower figure in stocks may well rest mainly on his own temperament and attitude. If he can act as a cold-blooded weigher of the odds, he would be likely to favor the low 25% stock component at this time, with the idea of waiting until the Dow Jones Industrial Average dividend yield was, say, two-thirds of the bond yield before he would establish his median 50-50 division between bonds and stocks. Starting from 900 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average and dividends of $36 on the unit, this would require either a fall in taxable bond yields from 71 halves of a percent to about 5.5% without any change in the present return on leading stocks, or a fall in the Dow Jones Industrial Average to as low as 660 if there is no reduction in bond yields and no increase in dividends. A combination of intermediate changes could produce the same buying point. A program of that kind is not especially complicated, the hard part is to adopt it and to stick to it not to mention the possibility that it may turn out to have been much too conservative. The Bond Component The choice of issues in the bond component of the investor's portfolio will turn about two main questions. Should he buy taxable or tax-free bonds, and should he buy shorter or longer-term maturities, the tax decision should be mainly a matter of arithmetic, turning on the difference in yields as compared with the investor's tax bracket. In January 1972 the choice in 20-year maturities was between obtaining, say, 
71 halves of a percent on grade AA corporate bonds and 5.3% on prime tax-free issues. The term municipals is generally applied to all species of tax-exempt bonds, including state obligations, there was thus for this maturity a loss in income of some 30% in passing from the corporate to the municipal field. Hence if the investor was in a maximum tax bracket higher than 30% he would have a net saving after taxes by choosing the municipal bonds, the opposite, if his maximum tax was less than 30%. A single person starts paying a 30% rate when his income after deductions passes $10,000, for a married couple their rate applies when combined taxable income passes $20,000. It is evident that a large proportion of individual investors would obtain a higher return after taxes from good municipals than from good corporate bonds. The choice of longer versus shorter maturities involves quite a different question, viz, does the investor want to assure himself against a decline in the price of his bonds, but at the cost of, 1, a lower annual yield and, 2, loss of the possibility of an appreciable gain in principal value? We think it best to discuss this question in Chapter 8, The Investor and Market Fluctuations. For a period of many years in the past the only sensible bond purchases for individuals were the U.S. savings issues. Their safety was, and is, unquestioned. They gave a higher return than other bond investments of first quality. They had a money-back option and other privileges which added greatly to their attractiveness. In our earlier editions we had an entire chapter entitled U.S. Savings Bonds, a boon to investors. As we shall point out, U.S. Savings Bonds still possess certain unique merits that make them a suitable purchase by any individual investor. For the man of modest capital, with, say, not more than $10,000 to put into bonds, we think they are still the easiest and the best choice but those with larger funds may find other mediums more desirable. Let us list a few major types of bonds that deserve investor consideration, and discuss them briefly with respect to general description, safety, yield, market price, risk, income tax status, and other features. 1. U.S. Savings Bonds, Series E and Series H. We shall first sum. Marize their important provisions, and then discuss briefly the numerous advantages of these unique, attractive, and exceedingly convenient investments. The Series H bonds pay interest semi-annually, as do other bonds. The rate is 4.29% for the first year, and then a flat 5.10% for the next nine years to maturity. Interest on the Series E bonds is not paid out, but accrues to the holder through increase in redemption value. The bonds are sold at 75% of their face value, and mature at 100% in 5 years 10 months after purchase. If held to maturity the yield works out at 5%, compounded semi-annually. If redeemed earlier, the yield moves up from a minimum of 4.01% in the first year to an average of 5.20% in the next 45 sixths years. Interest on the bonds is subject to federal income tax, but is exempt from state income tax. However, federal income tax on the Series E bonds may be paid at the holder's option either annually as the interest accrues, through higher redemption value or not until the bond is actually disposed of. Owners of Series E bonds may cash them in at any time, shortly after purchase, at their current redemption value. Holders of Series H bonds have similar rights to cash them in at par value, cost. Series E bonds are exchangeable for Series H bonds, with certain tax advantages. Bonds lost, destroyed, or stolen may be replaced without cost. There are limitations on annual purchases, but liberal provisions for co-ownership by family members make it possible for most investors to buy as many as they can afford. Comment, there is no other investment that combines, 1, absolute assurance of principal and interest payments, 2, the right to demand full money back at any time, and, 3, 
guarantee of at least a 5% interest rate for at least 10 years. Holders of the earlier issues of Series E bonds have had the right to extend their bonds at maturity, and thus to continue to accumulate annual values at successively higher rates. The deferral of income tax payments over these long periods has been of great dollar advantage. We calculate it has increased the effective net after-tax rate received by as much as a third in typical cases. Conversely, the right to cash in the bonds at cost price or better has given the purchasers in former years of low interest rates complete protection against the shrinkage in principal value that befell many bond investors, otherwise stated. It gave them the possibility of benefiting from the rise in interest rates by switching their low interest holdings into very high coupon issues on an even money basis. In our view the special advantages enjoyed by owners of Saffings bonds now will more than compensate for their lower current return as compared with other direct government obligations. 2. Other United States bonds. A profusion of these issues exists covering a wide variety of coupon rates and maturity dates. All of them are completely safe with respect to payment of interest and principal. They are subject to federal income taxes but free from state income tax. In late 1971 the long-term issues, over 10 years, showed an average yield of 6.09%, intermediate issues. 3 to 5 years, returned 6.35%, and short issues returned 6.03%. In 1970 it was possible to buy a number of old issues at large discounts. Some of these are accepted at par in settlement of estate taxes. Example, the US Treasury 31 slash 2 due 1990 are in this category, they sold at 60 in 1970 but closed 1970 above 77. It is interesting to note also that in many cases the indirect obligations of the U.S. government yield appreciably more than its direct obligations of the same maturity. As we write, an offering appears of 7.05% of certificates fully guaranteed by the Secretary of Transportation of the Department of Transportation of the United States. The yield was fully 1% more than that on direct obligations of the U.S., maturing the same year, 1986. The certificates were actually issued in the name of the trustees of the Penn Central Transportation Co., but they were sold on the basis of a statement by the U.S. Attorney General that the guarantee brings into being a general obligation of the United States, backed by its full faith and credit. Quite a number of indirect obligations of this sort have been assumed by the U.S. government in the past, and all of them have been scrupulously honored. The reader may wonder why all this hocus-pocus, involving an apparently personal guarantee by our Secretary of Transportation, and a higher cost to the taxpayer in the end. The chief reason for the indirection has been the debt limit imposed on government borrowing by the Congress. Apparently guarantees by the government are not regarded as debts, a semantic windfall for shrewder investors. Perhaps the chief impact of this situation has been the creation of tax-free housing authority bonds, enjoying the equivalent of a U.S. guarantee, and virtually the only tax-exempt issues that are equivalent to government bonds. Another type of government-backed issues is the recently created new community debentures, offered to yield 7.60% in September 1971. 3. State and Municipal Bonds. These enjoy exemption from federal income tax. They are also ordinarily free of income tax in the state of issue but not elsewhere. They are either direct obligations of a state or subdivision, or revenue bonds dependent for interest payments on receipts from a toll road, bridge, building lease, etc. Not all tax-free bonds are strongly enough protected to justify their purchase by a defensive investor. He may be guided in his selection by the rating given to each issue by Moody's or Standard & Poor's. One of three highest ratings by both services, AAA, AAA, AA, AA, or A, should constitute a sufficient indication of adequate safety. The yield on these bonds will vary both with the quality and the maturity, with the shorter maturities giving the lower return.
In late 1971 the issues represented in Standard & Poor's Municipal Bond Index averaged AA in quality rating, 20 years in maturity, and 5.78% in yield. A typical offering of Vineland, New Jersey. Bonds, rated AA for A and gave a yield of only 3% on the one-year maturity, rising to 5.8% to the 1995 and 1996 maturities.1. 4. Corporation Bonds. These bonds are subject to both federal and state tax. In early 1972 those of highest quality yielded 7.19% for a 25-year maturity, as reflected in the published yield of Moody's AAA Corporate Bond Index. The so-called lower-medium grade issues, rated bar, returned 8.23% for long maturities. In each class shorter-term issues would yield somewhat less than longer-term obligations. Comment. The above summaries indicate that the average investor has several choices among high-grade bonds. Those in high-income tax brackets can undoubtedly obtain a better net yield from good tax-free issues than from taxable ones. For others the early 1972 range of taxable yield would seem to be from 5.00% on U.S. savings bonds, with their special options, to about 71 halves of a percent on high-grade corporate issues. Higher Yielding Bond Investments By sacrificing quality an investor can obtain a higher income return from his bonds. Long experience has demonstrated that the ordinary investor is wiser to keep away from such high-yield bonds. While, taken as a whole, they may work out somewhat better in terms of overall return than the first quality issues, they expose the owner to too many individual risks of untoward developments, ranging from disquieting price declines to actual default. It is true that bargain opportunities occur fairly often in lower-grade bonds, but these require special study and skill to exploit successfully. Perhaps we should add here that the limits imposed by Congress on direct bond issues of the United States have produced at least two sorts of bargain opportunities for investors in the purchase of government-backed obligations. One is provided by the tax-exempt new housing issues and the other by the recently created, taxable, new community debentures. An offering of new housing issues in July 1971 yielded as high as 5.8%, free from both federal and state taxes, while an issue of, taxable, new community debentures sold in September 1971 yielded 7.60%. Both obligations have the full faith and credit of the United States government behind them and hence are safe without question. And, on a net basis, they yield considerably more than ordinary United States bonds. Savings Deposits in Lieu of Bonds An investor may now obtain as high an interest rate from a savings deposit in a commercial or savings bank, or from a bank certificate of deposit, as he can from a first-grade bond of short maturity. The interest rate on bank savings accounts may be lowered in the future, but under present conditions they are a suitable substitute for short-term bond investment by the individual. Convertible Issues These are discussed in Chapter 16. The price variability of bonds in general is treated in Chapter 8, The Investor and Market Fluctuations. Call Provisions in previous editions we had a fairly long discussion of this aspect of bond financing, because it involved a serious but little noticed injustice to the investor. In the typical case bonds were callable fairly soon after issuance, and at modest premiums, say 5%, above the issue price. This meant that during a period of wide fluctuations in the underlying interest rates the investor had to bear the full brunt of unfavorable changes and was deprived of all but a meager participation in favorable ones. Example, our standard example has been the issue of American Gas and Electric 100-year 5% debentures, sold to the public at 101 in 1928. Four years later, under near panic conditions, the price of these good bonds fell to 621 halves, yielding 8%. By 1946, in a Great River Sal, bonds of this type could be sold to yield only 3%, and by 
and the 5% issue should have been quoted at close to 160. But at that point the company took advantage of the call provision and redeemed the issue at a mere 106. The call feature in these bond contracts was a thinly disguised instance of heads I win, tails you lose. At long last, the bond buying institutions refused to accept this unfair arrangement, in recent years most long-term high coupon issues have been protected against redemption for 10 years or more after issuance. This still limits their possible price rise, but not inequitably. In practical terms, we advise the investor in long-term issues to sacrifice a small amount of yield to obtain the assurance of non-calability, say for 20 or 25 years. Similarly, there is an advantage in buying a low-coupon bond at a discount rather than a high-coupon bond selling at about par and callable in a few years. For the discount, for example, of a 31 halves of a percent bond at 631 halves of a percent, yielding 7.85%, carries full protection against adverse call action, straight, that is, non-convertible, preferred stocks. Certain general observations should be made here on the subject of preferred stocks. Really good preferred stocks can and do exist, but they are good in spite of their investment form, which is an inherently bad one. The typical preferred shareholder is dependent for his safety on the ability and desire of the company to pay dividends on its common stock. Once the common dividends are omitted, or even in danger, his own position becomes precarious for the directors are under no obligation to continue paying him unless they also pay on the common. On the other hand, the typical preferred stock carries no share in the company's profits beyond the fixed dividend rate. Thus the preferred holder lacks both the legal claim of the bondholder, or creditor, and the profit possibilities of a common shareholder, or partner. These weaknesses in the legal position of preferred stocks tend to come to the fore recurrently in periods of depression. Only a small percentage of all preferred issues are so strongly entrenched as to maintain an unquestioned investment status through all vicissitudes. Experience teaches that the time to buy preferred stocks is when their price is unduly depressed by temporary adversity. At such times they may be well suited to the aggressive investor but too unconventional for the defensive investor. In other words, they should be bought on a bargain basis or not at all. We shall refer later to convertible and similarly privileged issues, which carry some special possibilities of profits. These are not ordinarily selected for a conservative portfolio. Another peculiarity in the general position of preferred stocks deserves mention. They have a much better tax status for corporation buyers than for individual investors. Corporations pay income tax on only 15% of the income they receive in dividends, but on the full amount of their ordinary interest income. Since the 1972 corporate rate is 48%, this means that $100 received as preferred stock dividends is taxed only $7.20 whereas $100 received as bond interest is taxed $48. On the other hand, individual investors pay exactly the same tax on preferred stock investments as on bond interest, except for a recent minor exemption. Thus, in strict logic, all investment-grade preferred stocks should be bought by corporations, just as all tax-exempt bonds should be bought by investors who pay income tax. Security Forms The bond form and the preferred stock form, as hitherto discussed, are well understood and relatively simple matters. A bondholder is entitled to receive fixed interest and payment of principal on a definite date. The owner of a preferred stock is entitled to a fixed dividend, and no more, which must be paid before any common dividend. His principal value does not come due on any specified date. The dividend may be cumulative or non-cumulative. He may or may not have a vote. The above describes the standard provisions and, no doubt, the majority of bond and preferred issues, but there are innumerable departures from these forms. The best known types are convertible and similar issues, and income bonds. In the latter type, 
Interest does not have to be paid unless it is earned by the company. Unpaid interest may accumulate as a charge against future earnings, but the period is often limited to three years. Income bonds should be used by corporations much more extensively than they are. Their avoidance apparently arises from a mere accident of economic history, namely, that they were first employed in quantity in connection with railroad reorganizations, and hence they have been associated from the start with financial weakness and poor investment status. But the form itself has several practical advantages, especially in comparison with and in substitution for the numerous, convertible, preferred stock issues of recent years. Chief of these is the deductibility of the interest paid from the company's taxable income, which in effect cuts the cost of that form of capital in half. From the investor's standpoint it is probably best for him in most cases that he should have, 1, an unconditional right to receive interest payments when they are earned by the company, and, 2, a right to other forms of protection than bankruptcy proceedings if interest is not earned and paid. The terms of income bonds can be tailored to the advantage of both the borrower and the lender in the manner best suited to both. Conversion privileges can, of course, be included, the acceptance by everybody of the inherently weak preferred stock form and the rejection of the stronger income bond form is a fascinating illustration of the way in which traditional institutions and habits often tend to persist on Wall Street despite new conditions calling for a fresh point of view. With every new wave of optimism or pessimism, we are ready to abandon history and time-tested principles, but we cling tenaciously and unquestioningly to our prejudices. Chapter 5 The Defensive Investor and Common Stocks Investment Merits of Common Stocks In our first edition, 1949, we found it necessary at this point to insert a long exposition of the case for including a substantial common stock component in all investment portfolios. Common stocks were generally viewed as highly speculative and therefore unsafe. They had declined fairly substantially from the high levels of 1946, but instead of attracting investors to them because of their reasonable prices, this fall had had the opposite effect of undermining confidence in equity securities. We have commented on the converse situation that has developed in the ensuing 20 years, whereby the big advance in stock prices made them appear safe and profitable investments at record high levels which might act to ally carry with them a considerable degree of risk. The argument we made for common stocks in 1949 turned on two main points. The first was that they had offered a considerable degree of protection against the erosion of the investor's dollar caused by inflation, whereas bonds offered no protection at all. The second advantage of common stocks lay in their higher average return to investors over the years. This was produced both by an average dividend income exceeding the yield on good bonds and by an underlying tendency for market value to increase over the years in consequence of the reinvestment of undistributed profits. While these two advantages have been of major importance, and have given common stocks a far better record than bonds over the long-term past, we have consistently warned that these benefits could be lost by the stock buyer if he pays too high a price for his shares. This was clearly the case in 1929, and it took 25 years for the market level to climb back to the ledge from which it had abysmally fallen in 1929 to 1932. Since 1957 common stocks have once again, through their high prices, lost their traditional advantage in dividend yield over bond interest rates. It remains to be seen whether the inflation factor and the economic growth factor will make up in the future for this significantly adverse development. It should be evident to the reader that we have no enthusiasm for common stocks in general at the 900 Dow Jones Industrial Average level of late 1971. For reasons already given we feel that the defensive investor cannot afford to be without an appreciable proportion of common stocks in his portfolio, even if he must regard them as the lesser of two evils, the greater being the risks attached to an all-bond holding. Rules for the Common Stock Component 
the selection of common stocks for the portfolio of the defensive investor should be a relatively simple matter. Here we would suggest four rules to be followed. 1. There should be adequate though not excessive diversification. This might mean a minimum of 10 different issues and a maximum of about 30. 2. Each company selected should be large, prominent, and conservatively financed. Indefinite as these adjectives must be, their general sense is clear. Observations on this point are added at the end of the chapter. 3. Each company should have a long record of continuous dividend payments. All the issues in the Dow Jones Industrial of Earth. Age met this dividend requirement in 1971. To be specific on this point we would suggest the requirement of continuous dividend payments beginning at least in 1950. 4. The investor should impose some limit on the price he will pay for an issue in relation to its average earnings over, say, the past seven years. We suggest that this limit be set at 25 times such average earnings, and not more than 20 times those of the last 12-month period but such a restriction would eliminate nearly all the strongest and most popular companies from the portfolio. In particular, it would ban virtually the entire category of growth stocks, which have for some years past been the favorites of both speculators and institutional investors. We must give our reasons for proposing so drastic an exclusion. Growth Stocks and the Defensive Investor the term growth stock is applied to one which has increased its per share earnings in the past at well above the rate for common stocks generally and is expected to continue to do so in the future. Some authorities would say that a true growth stock should be expected at least to double its per share earnings in 10 years, that is, to increase them at a compounded annual rate of over 7.1%. Obviously stocks of this kind are attractive to buy and to own provided the price paid is not excessive. The problem lies there, of 116. Course, since growth stocks have long sold at high prices in relation to current earnings and at much higher multiples of their average profits over a past period. This has introduced a speculative element of considerable weight in the growth stock picture and has made successful operations in this field a far from simple matter. The leading growth issue has long been international business machines, and it has brought phenomenal rewards to those who bought it years ago and held on to it tenaciously. But we have already pointed out that this best of common stocks actually lost 50% of its market price in a six months decline during 1961-62 and nearly the same percentage in 1969-70. Other growth stocks have been even more vulnerable to adverse developments. In some cases not only has the price fallen back but the earnings as well, thus causing a double discomfiture to those who owned them. A good second example for our purpose is Texas Instruments, which in six years rose from 5 to 256, without paying a dividend, while its earnings increased from 40 cents to $3.91 per share. Note that the price advanced five times as fast as the profits. This is characteristic of popular common stocks, but two years later the earnings had dropped off by nearly 50% and the price by four-fifths, to 49. The reader will understand from these instances why we regard growth stocks as a whole as too uncertain and risky a vehicle for the defensive investor. Of course, wonders can be accomplished with the right individual selections, bought at the right levels, and later sold after a huge rise and before the probable decline. But the average investor can no more expect to accomplish this than to find money growing on trees. In contrast we think that the group of large companies that are relatively unpopular, and therefore obtainable at reasonable earnings multipliers, offers a sound if unspectacular area of choice by the general public. We shall illustrate this idea in our chapter on portfolio selection. Portfolio changes. It is now standard practice to submit all security lists for periodic inspection in order to see whether their quality can be improved. This, of course, is a major part of the service provided for clients by investment counselors. 
Nearly all brokerage houses are ready to make corresponding suggestions, without special fee, in return for the commission business involved. Some brokerage houses maintain investment services on a fee basis. Presumably our defensive investor should obtain, at least once a year, the same kind of advice regarding changes in his portfolio as he sought when his funds were first committed. Since he will have little expertness of his own on which to rely, it is essential that he entrust himself only to firms of the highest reputation, otherwise he may easily fall into incompetent or unscrupulous hands. It is important, in any case, that at every such consultation he make clear to his adviser that he wishes to adhere closely to the four rules of common stock selection given earlier in this chapter. Incidentally, if his list has been competently selected in the first instance, there should be no need for frequent or numerous changes. Dollar Cost Averaging The New York Stock Exchange has put considerable effort into popularizing its monthly purchase plan, under which an investor devotes the same dollar amount each month to buying one or more common stocks. This is an application of a special type of formula investment known as dollar cost averaging. During the predominantly rising market experience since 1949 the results from such a procedure were certain to be highly satisfactory, especially since they prevented the practitioner from concentrating his buying at the wrong times. In Lucille Tomlinson's comprehensive study of formula investment plans, one the author presented a calculation of the results of dollar cost averaging in the group of stocks making up the Dow Jones Industrial Index. Tests were made covering 23 10-year purchase periods, the first ending in 1929, the last in 1952. Every test showed a profit either at the close of the purchase period or within five years thereafter. The average indicated profit at the end of the 23 buying periods was 21.5%, exclusive of dividends received. Needless to say, in some instances there was a substantial temporary depreciation at market value. Miss Tomlinson ends her discus scion of this ultra-simple investment formula with the striking sentence, no one has yet discovered any other formula for investing which can be used with so much confidence of ultimate success, regardless of what may happen to security prices, as dollar cost averaging. It may be objected that dollar cost averaging, while sound in principle, is rather unrealistic in practice, because few people are so situated that they can have available for common stock investment the same amount of money each year for, say, 20 years. It seems to me that this apparent objection has lost much of its force in recent years. Common stocks are becoming generally accepted as a necessary component of a sound savings investment program. Thus, systematic and uniform purchases of common stocks may present no more psychological and financial difficulties than similar continuous payments for United States savings bonds and for life insurance, to which they should be complementary. The monthly amount may be small, but the results after 20 or more years can be impressive and important to the saver. The Investor's Personal Situation at the beginning of this chapter we referred briefly to the position of the individual portfolio owner. Let us return to this matter, in the light of our subsequent discussion of general policy. To what extent should the type of securities selected by the investor vary with his circumstances? As concrete examples representing widely different conditions, we shall take, 1. A widow left $200,000 with which to support herself and her children. 2. A successful doctor in mid-career, with savings of $100,000 and yearly accretions of $10,000. And, 3. A young man earning $200 per week and saving $1,000 a year. For the widow, the problem of living on her income is a very difficult one. On the other hand the need for conservatism in her investments is paramount. A division of her fund about equally between United States bonds and first grade common stocks is a compromise between these objectives and corresponds to our general prescription for the defensive investor. The stock component may be placed as high as 75% if the investor is psychologically prepared for this decision, 
and if she can be almost certain she is not buying at too high a level. Assuredly this is not the case in early 1972. We do not preclude the possibility that the widow may qualify as an enterprising investor, in which case her objectives and methods will be quite different. The one thing the widow must not do is to take speculative chances in order to make some extra income. By this we mean trying for profits or high income without the necessary equipment to warrant full confidence in overall success. It would be far better for her to draw $2,000 per year out of her principal, in order to make both ends meet, than to risk half of it in poorly grounded, and therefore speculative, ventures. The prosperous doctor has none of the widow's pressures and compulsions, yet we believe that his choices are pretty much the same. Is he willing to take a serious interest in the business of investment? If he lacks the impulse or the flair, he will do best to accept the easy role of the defensive investor. The division of his portfolio should then be no different from that of the typical widow, and there would be the same area of personal choice in fixing the size of the stock component. The annual savings should be invested in about the same proportions as the total fund. The average doctor may be more likely than the average widow to elect to become an enterprising investor, and he is perhaps more likely to succeed in the undertaking. He has one important handicap, however, the fact that he has less time available to give to his investment education and to the administration of his funds. In fact, medical men have been notoriously unsuccessful in their security dealings. The reason for this is that they usually have an ample confidence in their own intelligence and a strong desire to make a good return on their money, without the realization that to do so successfully requires both considerable attention to the matter and something of a professional approach to security values. Finally, the young man who saves $1,000 a year, and expects to do better gradually, finds himself with the same choices, though for still different reasons. Some of his savings should go automatically into Series E bonds. The balance is so modest that it seems hardly worthwhile for him to undergo a tough educational and temperamental discipline in order to qualify as an aggressive investor. Thus a simple resort to our standard program for the defensive investor would be at once the easiest and the most logical policy. Let us not ignore human nature at this point. Finance has a fascination for many bright young people with limited means. They would like to be both intelligent and enterprising in the placement of their savings, even though investment income is much less important to them than their salaries. This attitude is all to the good. There is a great advantage for the young capitalist to begin his financial education and experience early.